When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Michael, can you do a Show Me the Meaning since we don't have uh, the the usuals here? Yeah, sure. Uh, hey, uh, show me the the meaning, please. <laughs> that was the Larry David version of Show Me the Meaning. <laughs> I didn't want to copy Ryan. You know, I felt like that would be disrespectful. That was the bumbly and awkward version. But what up? My name is Austin Hayden, and I am joined by Michael Burns. What's going on, brother? Not much. Very happy to be here. Um, very excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today. And very excited just to, to chat with you one-on-one, you know? Very special. Yeah. Uh, people don't know this, but we went to grad school together. And so uh, we actually lived together for a little bit. Uh, you were my mentor in some ways. And uh, yeah, so now this is... <laughs> This is like a this is like a reunion here. He was my philosophical mentor, and so uh, now we get to talk yeah. about art and meaning and things like that in the most watched television series on Netflix ever. In fact, it is the most watched thing ever, more than the freaking sunset. I didn't know if you knew that, but they've measured this. We're talking about Squid Game, uh, which is created by, and listen, I actually went online and I tried to learn how to pronounce these South Korean names. So if I butch these, butcher these, forgive oh, me, no. I'm doing my best here, but Hwang Dong Hyuk is the creator, writer, director, and it stars Lee Jung Jae, Park Hae Su, uh, Shi Ha Jun, Jung Ho Yeon, uh, Ho Sung Tae, and Oh Young Su, as well as others. Um, I'm also going to do my best with character names. Michael, you did pretty good in the video that we just did with character names. How are you feeling about the character names? I feel like if they were in front of me right now, I could say them properly. I feel yeah. like I'm not going to now, but it was, it was, you know, we tried our best in the video to honor those names while also being honest about the fact that, uh, we, you know, I don't speak South Korean. I wish I did. Yeah. 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 And is there much of a difference? And I would love to know this. If you can tell us, we are live by the way, in the chat. So if you can communicate with us in the chat, we'd love to hear it. You can write with us. You can tweet at us. S M T M underscore P O D. Tell us, is there a difference between in the dialect between the North and the South much, or is it pretty much identical? I'm showing differences and things like that. As so they, they implied that in the show. That's what I thought. Yeah, I should, I should, yeah, I should pull up the character names in front of me. I should have thought about that before, but yeah. So, well, this, so that is implied. Sebyok um, is the is the woman who's from North Korea. That's yes. The character. So yeah. it's implied that Sebyok has to switch her accent to oh. uh, speak in proper Southern Korean, and and she's sort of like called out for speaking. Uh, North Korean and just I don't know I think that's I mean so much more to get into but even that was interesting in the show thinking about those cultural differences that we don't think of thinking about like yeah. how how are like Pakistani migrant laborers treated in South Korea yeah. I think I don't think about like you know a lot of a lot of good stuff comes up lots to think about 
All right, so basically what we're going to do is here's the elevator pitch for Squid Game, right? In this series, down on their luck, indebted competitors compete in a series of children's games, but with murderous twists for the chance to win gobs and gobs of money and putatively free themselves from their debt bondage. As I said, this is the most, or it's on pace at least, to be the most watched thing ever on Netflix. I just read something yesterday that said that the series itself is estimated as being worth 900, over $900 million for Netflix. I don't know how However, they do their asset valuation, but it has to do probably with eyeballs, new people coming on, how long people stay on the app, app etc., etc. But anyway, so it's a billion-dollar property. They're talking about a second season, um, and there's a really cool story also behind how the show was made. Um, so we can talk about all of this. Normally, we would go around when we're doing a film, and we would get first impressions, and if we've seen it multiple times, I have a feeling, Michael, you have not seen the whole series more than once, even though you've probably seen excerpts twice because you just did a video on it that we released on the main channel by the way so people can check that out but let's just say yeah. what are your first impressions and then kind of what was it like as you started to scrape beneath the surface and really started to think critically about this I mean I think I was lucky that I went into it knowing nothing um, shout out to Wisecrack producer Evan who basically said like Burns you should watch this so we can we can think about if I want to do something on it but didn't know a lot going into it um, I just think one thing that stood out to me a lot tonally was how this show shifts between elements of, you know, straight up comedy and kind of like there's a, like yeah. a very like quirky vibe at the beginning. Um, and even like in the first episode, the character that plays Jiyun, um, you know, it's kind of like this schlub who's like, Mom, I don't want to do this. Can I have some money? Like there's <laughs> yeah, something comedic. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and the way they get so dark and intense so quick, I think plays with you as a viewer. And I think that stood out to me throughout um, the tonal balance they got in the show. And then I just like, yeah, the exploration of debt, and this is something we'll talk about. I know it's something we both have thought about. I know it's something you've written about before. But I thought using debt as the way they do throughout the series was really brilliant. I think the show had a couple missteps, but when it was firing on all cylinders, like shout out to episode six, um, just a really phenomenal show. And I'm so glad that, I don't know, not to praise Netflix, but their, their model here <laughs> of, you know... Yeah taking an international show and and really putting it on a global audience really worked out this time around so yeah how about, mm. how about you like what was your experience in watching this one yeah so the very first time i was introduced to it was you know the little trailer i think it was like recommended from the algorithm i probably because everyone was uh -huh. watching it too and it kind of popped up and i saw these figures with these masks and they were kind of like talking about the rules and i was like oh this looks like some sort of um, social commentary. Like, I immediately knew. Mm -hmm. I was thinking of, like, Cube, or I was thinking of some sort of, like, uh, Hunger Games-y Battle Royale, which I immediately was thinking that. I was like, oh, okay, so it's this, like, uh, either dystopian or or some sort of satirical. It, it just, it, it kind of immediately st stood out to me that that's what it was. Mm -hmm. um, and because I didn't know that uh, that I was listening to dubs, and it was the people in the masks talking. I had no oh, idea that it was... You did dubs, not subs? Well, no, no. Only that trailer part. And oh, then, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and then I was like, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. And then I saw that it was the South, the, the Korean actors. Then I was like, oh, wait a second. So they're fucking dubbing. I was like, that's why would they dub? I was like, dubs are terrible. But for some reason, the Netflix's default was dubs uh, um, on mine anyway. And I was like, this is so weird. Um, so then I just didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, that looks kind of whatever. You know, it's a it's a thing. And then I saw all the hubbub online, and I was like, oh, I guess mm-hmm. I gotta, I guess I gotta check this out. So I was on a no walk choice. one day with my girl who hates like horror things, and I was like, should we get into this Squid Game thing? She's like, yeah, let's get into it. And then we were hooked. And immediately from the first episode, my initial thought was, this doesn't look like it's filmed like a TV series or a TV show. It felt like a film. It felt very cinematic in the way that it was shot, um, the lighting. Um, it felt like I was was watching something like if you would have told me at a film festival that this was some new South Korean director that I was unfamiliar with and this was their new thing I was like yeah it had all the elements that lighthearted kind of humor that you were talking about but mixed with the serious social commentary I was like yeah this fits perfectly within you know something that you might see coming out of South Korea alongside a lot of these other great hitters um, that we often talk about on this show, for example. Yeah. Um, so that was my first impression. And then it started to unfold and I was like, oh, this is clearly social commentary. And I was actually baffled, kind of baffled that so many people online were debating whether or not the show had a social angle. I was like, guys, it's not even fucking subtle. <laughs> yeah, this wasn't like hitting, <laughs> hidden meaning here. Like, I think we have a no. lot to talk about on this episode but i think that we're not going to sit here today and be like "Ooh, what this really meant like you all get it i think we can expand that and talk about what this means in in context of a lot of things but not a subtle thing no no so and then we watched it we were hooked on it and um it was weird it was one of those shows that when it ended i was like you know it it really did because it stirred up a lot of conversation with uh, with within the household, but also just with friends and stuff like that. And I was like, oh man, I want more. So it left me wanting more, which is great. And I'm pretty sure they'll probably put together a second season. They would be fools not to, considering how much money this dang show is going to make them. So, oh my uh, god, yeah. They so, would, yeah. And I do think it's interesting to note that you, you talked about it looking like a film. Um, I know that it was originally pitched as a film, and then the writer-director yeah. expanded it. I think sometimes you can notice in a series when you find out that it was originally a film then spread out over you know six or eight episodes, sometimes it you can tell they've put in a bunch of fluff you know, to sort of yeah. take up narrative space because they don't have, let's say, six episodes. This was an instance, for the most part, where I, they did such a great job of expanding what was originally meant to be, you know, presumably a two-hour film into something that was, you know, seven and a half, eight hours long. So definite shouts to them on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really well constructed. So what we'll do is we'll start peeling things apart. Um, obviously, there are things that a lot of people have been talking about, and then I think there are some things that we addressed in our Wisecrack video that I think we should definitely talk about. And then there might be some other things that haven't been addressed so much that I feel like maybe we can try to kind of tease things out. But first, before we do that, we got to give a shout out to our sponsor for this week's episode, Skillshare. Y'all know the deal. Skillshare is rad. It's an online learning community where you can connect with other like-minded people and creatives and where you can explore projects that you are passionate about. And this is why Skillshare is really so cool is because you can unleash your creativity and you can pursue your passions right from the comfort of your own homes. And they offer thousands of classes that you can take. iPhone photography, drone filming, editing, classes on improving productivity, video for IG. I go back to Skillshare a lot for things about like filming, editing, um, and kind of some of the motivational ones just because as an artist, you can never have enough kicks in the butt to light those fires. So if you're interested in checking out all the cool stuff that Skillshare has to offer, 
and explore your creativity, connect with some cool people, go to Skillshare.com SMTM and you'll get a free trial of their premium membership. So that's Skillshare.com SMTM. Get a free trial of the premium membership, Skillshare.com SMTM. TM, or you can click the link down in the show notes. All right. Um, as I said, also, we are live on YouTube right now. So definitely, I mean, this show has created such a buzz. I'm sure people don't have a shortage of hot takes or fan theories or things that they love. So please comment in the chats and we'll do our best to uh, get to some of those. But Michael, let's start with the video that we made. The, yeah. The, the, big, the big theme. Um, indebted, indebted subjects indebted man uh we talked about the philosophy of lazarado who wrote a book called the making of indebted man and we talked about how that might be um the kind of prime way to understand the socioeconomic or political economic concepts of this can you explain a little bit about what's going on there with indebtedness yeah and and, you know i'm excited to talk to you about this because i know austin a lot of your kind of reason i don't know how many people uh you know there's many sides to austin i don't know how many of you dig deep into his academic side but someone who's kind of pivoted since back in the day and you do a lot of cool stuff on economics and things like that now so excited to hear your thoughts on this um i mean it kind of worked out because i literally i started reading um Lazzarato before squid game came out just as like uh wanting to get back into reading some political theory and stuff like that i love italians great food great yeah. culture so it was already <laughs> in this mind space and when i started watching squid game I was like oh so um Lazzarato, who's a uh italian political economist and theorist who i think has been based in france for a lot of years is really interested in the concept of indebtedness as like the foundational concept in political theory and looking at western societies and in particular in this concept of indebted man he wants to make the argument that indebtedness is a fundamental feature of what it means to be a modern subject a modern subject in you know western capitalist societies and he traces it back and you know david graber does this as well in his big book on debt but traces it back to at least lazarado goes as far back as nietzsche and looks at nietzsche's arguments for debt and guilt um and his writings on morality connects that to Christianity and this idea that you are born with a fundamental debt or guilt. So you owe something to to God. So you kind of have like a spiritual debt. And Lazarado sort of argues that this set things up perfectly um, for an economy based on debt because you already had individuals with an internal psychology that said, you know, I, I always already owe something and I'm defined by uh, that yeah. debt. So then we transfer that. And in economics, that's, and, you know, he makes it very clear as well that it's not it's not in his mind incidental that in the West um, rates of debt, both, you know, the debts nations have and the debts that individuals have. It, it's a feature, not a dysfunction of the system. Um, it is a, yeah. a part of how things are designed to work. And I think that really stood out to me in relationship to the show. Because you saw how all of these people's lives are so defined by debt. And I really do think, you know, in episode nine, I'm pretty sure, um, when uh, June's getting uh, his haircut and his, his red dye job, um, they cut uh, to yes. yeah, they cut to a TV for this a second. And it's like a, a Korean news report on the rising rate of debt amongst people in society. So it seems very yeah. clear that, like, that's going on. But um, all I have to say is... That's the stuff from Lazarado that stood out to me is very interesting. That's kind of what we we touched on in the video a bit. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, like when we, you you oftentimes might hear people in in economics talk about liquidity and solvency, and we don't really know what these terms might mean. And like, we know they're related to money and financial flows. 
And one of the things that I've been really working on a lot alongside the work of a, a, a theorist by the name of Michelle Fair is this notion of liquidity as being something that defines us as humans. And so liquidity is basically the capacity to meet your obligations right and so if you are illiquid that means you do not have access to um, something that can be easily transformable so that you can meet your obligations so like an illiquid asset would be like a house right it could be worth a lot of money but you can't really sell it super quickly so that you can get access to the money so that you can um, meet the obligations that you might need in the form of money which is generally considered the most liquid because you can exchange it immediately because if I got money you need money someone needs the money so we can figure out how things work right so I think of we can think of this in terms of like an indebted subject is somebody who does not have one solvency in the sense that they don't have much access to asset wealth but more importantly they are incapable they are incapable of something and we live in a society that requires a certain type of capacity so the idea then of course of being a liquid subject is that you are a subject that has a certain type of capacity because you have been shaped and you have been formed and you have been fashioned in the um, kind of fires of being asset wealthy or at least better positioned within kind of like uh, the asset paradigm, which means that you do have a capacity, right, that is not on offer to everyone. I think what you get them with all of these people they are indebted, sure. So they're indebted. The obligations that they owe are to what the state, or to the bookies, or mm -hmm. to um, you know family members, or to their banks, or to investors, or whatever. So they have obligations, but their problem is that they're fundamentally unable to meet those needs. So they are all illiquid subjects. So they they have no capacity. So they are impotent in the literal sense of the word they have zero potency they have no power right so then what happens is is this game comes along and they're kind of um it's a sort of like they're forced into it it's not like you know they talk a lot about equality in the yeah. game and you kind of it's like it's like it's like they use the guise of oh this is this is like um an equal opportunity but there's a fundamental incapacity that forces them to be in this situation in the first place. And then the only way that they can have any kind of power is by playing according to the rules of the game that are set before them. Yeah, right? well, it's like this existential so, yeah. versus economic freedom thing. I think that we, we get obsessed with this idea of freedom as being something that defines like our baseline existence in the world and that I'm free to say whatever I want. I'm free to, you know, set off a car bomb or, or drink a glass of water, um, <laughs> whatever it might be. But, you know, I think the show gets at that tension. And I think, I mean, for me, two of my favorite parts in the show are the parts where the front man sort of explains like, I'm so sorry for what's happening. This is a game of equality, a true democracy and people breaking yeah. the rules ruin yeah. that. And it's just like, I, to, to me, that's, I think that's, I don't think the show is a satire, but I think those are the moments where the show is explicitly doing satire um, and, and particularly satire about what freedom means. Yeah, I think we're supposed to look at that and be like, well, clearly this is absurd. Like what you're saying is is ridiculous. Like, yeah, you can for some reason, there's like this perverse pleasure you get in believing that there is equality down here. But um, this isn't any sort of meaningful sense of equality, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah, there's a formal equality within the rules of the game, but these fools are all seriously hamstrung in their capacity. And equality means nothing without potency yeah. without power without some sort of ability and i think you know this is what you get um kind of between 
Um, and once again, everyone truly try my best to, to honor all the characters' names. But between Jiyun and Sang Woo is this difference between how we respond yeah. to what is like a forced point of freedom. And Sang Woo is kind of just like, fuck it. This is where we're at. Um, if I have to like, if I have to get Ali killed, spoiler alert, uh. um, I'm going to do it. And, and it's sort of this acknowledgement of like there isn't freedom there's only survival there isn't life there's only that baseline of survival conditions so fuck freedom mm-hmm. i'm gonna do what i have to do and then you you see june like try to hold on to this idea of trying to like embrace his own freedom and to acknowledge the humanity of the other players in the game um and towards the end of the mm-hmm. series i think you you see that and of course i think that's what a reflection in modern society because we often hear like you know, especially when people get older, people start to like give away the the idealism of their youth. And you got to live in the real world. You have to work within the conditions that were given. We live in the real world, not the ideal world. And I felt like you saw that tension a little bit build throughout the show, but especially between those two main characters. What do you think the show is saying about? Um, let's take uh, Jiun and and Sangwoo. Like, is one, like, Song Wu kind of emerges, at first we think it's the gangster guy that's the baddie, but mm-hmm. really Song Wu comes out to be the ultimate villain, and he's the one, remember, that Ji-hun grew up with, and that is like, oh, every time he talks about him, like, he graduated from university, you know, he's like the hero of the neighborhood, the and now he's like super town, successful. Yeah. The, that's right, and then he becomes the one who's ruthless who seems to not really have any sort of concern about humanity. Um, and then you have Jiyun who's trying to maintain some sort of ethic, but at the same time, in his quote-unquote real life outside the game, he's not really the best father. He's not really living up to his responsibilities. Is that just because he's down on his luck and he's not able and he's embarrassed? Like, what do we think about the, like, the personalities of these two? Or, or not the personalities, but the character traits of these two? that are clearly set up in opposition to each other. Of course, culminating in the final game where they play with each other. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, God. Yeah. I'm sorry. Was the question there? I got distracted for two seconds because I'm trying to pay attention to our chat because uh, everyone's saying great stuff. And- uh, no, it's just more like, what do we think about the polarity yeah. of these two? You've yeah. Got, you've got one who's like the golden boy who, is it just because he was the golden boy? And in my mm-hmm. mind, this is what I, this is how I, because they don't really give too much about why he's down on his luck. I'm thinking mm. golden boy, majors in business, gets into some deep investment stuff, becomes totally just um, uh, overwhelmed by, by debts. And he then has no other way to function except by playing in this game. Yeah, I mean, I think it's right? like some Wolf like, of Wall Street shit, right? Um, whatever the, the Wall Street equivalent is in Seoul. Um, but, you know, like, I think he, the way he plays in the game, um, like when he cheats, when he backstabs, all that sort of stuff. I think we clearly get the idea that that's how he got himself into so much trouble by playing ruthlessly in Uh. the game of economics. But of course we know that if someone takes the fall in that world, the homies aren't getting your back. You're done. You're, you're out like chum in the water, you know? So I think we get that sense that he did what he probably thought he was supposed to do. And of course we know the background that he's someone from, it seems like a, a pretty working class, lower class environment. He hustled his ass off to get there, thought he was doing the things he was supposed to do, gets fucked over is in this desperate situ- situation. Whereas like June seems like someone who never even got how to play the game. 
you know, like never understood uh. the rules to begin with, which is why he's, you know, divorced, can't afford to buy his daughter a birthday present, living with his mother, you know, a, a version of that slacker type who, and, and to be clear, I'm not saying that he like resisted by not opting into the system, but he seems like someone who <laughs> just never figured yeah. out how to play and naively got himself in trouble by trying to find like a quick way to make money or, or even of course, like, which was the gambling. With, yeah. And I think the gambling too, I think someone in the chat said this as yeah. well. So if you did, um, props to you, uh, but also touches on addiction, the way that there's a psychology here in that cycle, wh- 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 how someone could fall into that, how there's a relationship between debt and liquidity and, and gambling and pyramid schemes and like trying to acquire that power. Yeah. And it seems like he's fallen into a system that's uh, a thing that's internal to society that's played right into that. And of course, you know, he. This yeah. is great. No, yeah, well, no, going, no, just going. the irony there too that you know, uh, June, someone who who lost it all playing games, and now he has to try to win it all back playing games. Yeah, and and it's interesting because the thrill and the excitement that he gets from gambling and potentially having a win is 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 amazing. Like it's thrilling, it's exhilarating, but he. He seems to come across as somebody who's crushed by his debt relationship. Whereas when we look at the asset rich in society, let's say a derivatives trader or something like that, or somebody who's like using high forms of leverage with multi, multi, multi million dollars of debt, they don't often feel the consequences of that debt burden. And so um, even though they're maybe more indebted, quote unquote, in terms of um, real numbers, in terms of the consequences or the felt sense of, of feeling that indebtedness, it's not the same, right? And so there's actually, there's, there's a guy by the name of Amin Saman who wrote this really great article and uh, it's it's on like the eternal return in Nietzsche and um, what he talks about as being like these two divergent structures of feeling between the asset rich and the asset poor and the asset rich they're the ones who play the game of finance right they play the games of debt and equity but they do it in a way that is exhilarating and that is exciting because they're rewarded and they're a part of this system kind of constitutively whereas the asset poor are the ones that are feeling this debt burden because yeah they might get a win every now and then and yeah they they might have some sort of uh, reward that comes in a flash but perpetually they they feel it as they're having to pay their rent and they're having to pay their credit card bills and they're having to pay their cell phone bills and they're having to pay their car payments and then they have their insurance payments and it's this constant laboring under this debt burden which is very different than the exhilarating side. Well, and I think it's yeah. like compare the real estate developer to the college student, right? Both are in, are in positions <laughs> where they probably have yeah. to take on large amounts of debt. The real estate developer goes into tons of debt because he can continue to borrow against the asset. Um, and if things go bad, yeah. bankruptcy, let's start over and go from there. You, you so many um, you know, real estate development types especially do that. Sometimes I get annoyed. Uh, currently, a, a developer might take over the last remaining solid bar in my neighborhood. So I have to look at, look these people up. And it's just like, okay, you're someone that's done a bunch of bad deals before. And your reward for those bad deals is you get to build another 200-unit luxury building. But then, of course, you might have the student who – and I think we see this reflected in a lot of the younger characters in Squid Game – who the student wants to do something honorable. She wants to take out money to live, to go to school, to get a job, to do the things she's supposed to. But if she screws up, she's fucked. You know, there's no there's no bankruptcy. There's no asset to borrow against. Um, and, you know, some of the people in Squid Game that we see are, are bad. 
I forget the name of the the guys like the uh, the gangster dude um, who's real. Oh, I think it's Ho, uh, Ho Sung Tae. Uh, oh no, sorry. His that's the actor's name. The character is Jing Jing Duk Su. Um, but you know, total piece of shit. I don't think we feel bad for him <laughs> when he goes. Um, no, and, and I think, and I don't no. think we feel bad for him even like no, business wise. I... Like this guy seems like a total piece of shit, very bad guy. But then you have some of the other folks, yeah, um, and a lot of the younger characters trying their best. A character like Ali, who clearly like got screwed over by his employer. Um, wants to provide for his family. We even see with Ali that like he lost fingers in the job he worked and wasn't provided for, you know, after the fact. So it just shows. I mean, I think that the difference you you acknowledge there, like we really, 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 really see that in these characters. And I do think it's important as well that like when we talk about all of this, and we talk about indebted subjects, whatever it might be, we're not saying that makes anyone good or bad or virtuous or you know evil. Um, there, there's a, a big moral range there. And I do think the show does a solid job of that as well, of not pretending that, like, people are inherently good because they have debt and people are inherently evil because they don't. Well, I think that's one of the that's one of the things that the show really does kind of explore is, and that's what I was wondering with this, like, Song Wu character, because there is a lot of, like, reflection or mirroring of how people lived in their real lives that's also played out with how they either act in the game or how they die in the game, right? And so it it is interesting to kind of think about how these people's characteristics, that's kind of what I was thinking about earlier, like is Jihun, is he a good guy, right? Like is he a good guy and then he gets rewarded for being a good guy as the winner and Sangwoo, he's a bad guy and so so he gets punished. Or because Jihun is kind of... I don't know if I'd say he's a good guy, but there's an earnestness about him. He, he's he's you know? a broken like guy, a, you know? There's like a brokenness he's a and broken openness. Guy. And he was kind of in a, in a traditional, like, hero's journey type way, right? In storytelling. He is one of the characters. We see him change mm. throughout the course of it. We see him respond to things. Whereas in saying, well, we have someone who doubles down. Who, who when things get tough, he doesn't change. We don't see his character alter or shift because of the journey and the tribulations. We see him sort of double down on the very type of behavior that got him there in the first place. Mm. Um, now, what do we think about some of the other characters? I don't know if we want to call them because it really is an ensemble oh, cast. For it's sure. almost it's actually yeah, it's really nicely done, actually, how, like, Jihoon is the main character, but a lot of talk has gone around the figure of Il-Nam, who is the older mm-hmm. guy, player number one. And I, I think throughout right? the player show, Jihoon often just calls him, like, the old man. The old yeah, man. Yeah, that's how he's often referred so to So what it. do we think about the old man? Because we learn that, okay, he, he claims that he's got, like, a brain tumor, and then what we learn at the end of it all is that he actually is the one who runs this whole game. Like, what the fuck do we do? Like, why? Why did he set this? Is this just some rich guy that wanted to get his rocks off by? Or did he really think, like, that there was something good that he could accomplish? Like, what? what is his deal? What is his motivation? What's he trying to prove or accomplish? Yeah, and I might get the quote wrong, but he says something to the effect of, like, the two most unhappy people are the very poor and the very rich. So he sets up this sort of like, uh, you know, dialectical opposites coming together that in both positions, you are miserable when you have nothing, you're miserable. And when you have everything, you're miserable because everything is nothing and nothing is everything, yada, yada, yada. Um, 
And I do think, like, I kind of like how when he's saying that in the scene, there's part of, you know, when I watched that, was like, oh, no. Is the show, like, trying to do a thing now where they're like, but you know what's rough, too? Being super rich. <laughs> and I do like how, how Jiyun is just kind of like, fuck you. Like, he doesn't buy it. Like, he doesn't yeah. give into that. And I think yeah. it's telling, too, that, you know, you have that final scene where he wants to bet on if a unhoused person would be taken care of or freeze to death. And he just made that a right. game. Um, so I, I, I don't, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I think there was still like a very intense selfishness there and something about the idea of like the, the ultra rich man wanting to cosplay as an oppressed or vulnerable person. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. What, what did you make of that? Well, let's, let's keep going back. I love this. I've just been obsessed lately with this notion of like, uh, like being a liquid subject, right? So mm-hmm. if you are extremely wealthy, you are, and you are totally liquid. You can pretty much do anything you want. You want to take the afternoon off? You can take the afternoon off. You want to buy a golf course? You can buy a golf course. You want this kind of food? You can have that kind of food. You're craving this? You can kind of do that if you want, right? Now, that doesn't mean there are no consequences. Like, sure, you miss the afternoon meeting and you might, like, screw up something with your board members. That's not my point. My point is, though, is that you have the capacity to do this stuff, right? Whereas, when you are asset poor, you don't have that capacity. So, the difference, there's a fundamental difference. Like, maybe the the rich, the super rich are unhappy in Ilnam's sense, but he also has the ability to, like you just said, to cosplay as the poor, to cosplay as somebody who is asset poor, whereas the asset poor, they don't have the option to cosplay as the asset rich, right? Like, they can try their damnedest, but it's not its not nearly going to be the same thing. So there's also yeah. a fundamental imbalance of capacity, of ability there. So... I'm, mm-hmm. I'm like, I was wondering too, like, why is he unhappy? Was it just because he was like, hey, you know, like, youth is filled with potency and with opportunity and the world is your oyster kind of thing. And then you get older yeah. and you realize you have responsibilities and board meetings and shareholder interests and yada, yada, yada. Like, is that is that what he's getting at? Yeah. I wonder if it's kind of like the old... The old Aristotle thing, um, when, when Aristotle talks about uh, ways that we try to be happy that suck, um, I think it's like oh, yeah, early, yeah, yeah. early on in the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, but, you know, there's the thing about like money and it's sort of like you could pursue wealth, but you pursue wealth for other means and it goes on infinitely. Mm. So, you know, the point mm. Aristotle makes is there's never a clear end goal, never a clear tell us. So you just end up in this cycle. And it seems like in a sense, that's what's happened with this character. He's ch- chased mm. wealth accumulation at all costs, but there's no... There's no, like, meaning at the end of that tunnel uh, other than more consumption and acquisition. And you get old and you're about to die because of a brain tumor. Like, what does it mean? And I don't think it means a lot. And, you know, that's a trope in a lot of TV and film is, like, the rich old man at the end of his life. uh, You know, what what does it all mean? Rosebud, et cetera. Mm. Um, Yeah. But that's, I mean, it's kind of how I read that a little. I think for me that would be, like, my most charitable reading of what's going on with that character. Yeah, I think there's a tragic reading we can we can follow mm-hmm. on this too, which is the tragic reading is that, okay, so you got the super rich guy and you got the super poor guy and they're the poles, right? Or the super poor people even, right? Um, and then it's like, okay, so the super rich guy is able to do all these things because he's asset rich and he has that uh, capacity to be a liquid subject. And then you've got the indebted people who are, they're in debt bondage, right? 
but they still have to be incorporated into the system to be able to become potent, which means then that the, the sources of power, the sources of capacity, the sources of your ability, the sources that can even make you function as a vital being are already played out before you in an economic system that determines that money is the thing that gives you capacity in a marketized society. And so here's where the tragedy is. The tragedy is, is that, okay, we can think of things potentially outside of economic reason, like family. Like, oh, maybe Il-Nam is depressed because he realizes this instrumental form of light that he's always uh, kind of been in, uh, trapped within because you use money in order to get the thing, to get the thing, to get the thing, but it's this infinitely receding pursuit that never leads to the ultimate thing. But then you're like, ah, but then what is the thing that gives us value, that gives us meaning, that gives us joy? Family, maybe, right? And then you've got Ji-hun that has that opportunity to get a little bit of money and then maybe leave the game, leave the system, and then go be with the family, but he can't. He leaves at the end and he goes back probably into the game. Maybe it's to track people down. Maybe it's to who fuck, who, who knows? There's all kinds of theories about why he leaves and doesn't become the father. But he could just, he's now a liquid subject. He's got this money. He could do the things, right? So he could do anything. Yeah. He, he could start a family life, but nah, he can't, he can't even do that. So it's almost like there's this no hope at the end of this. Even, yeah. even, even with the promise of like something like family that might seem like it's outside of the remit of economic yeah. reason, even that he can't do. Well, and if the game is an analog for how, let's say, the economic structure of the world works, he's seen the end of it. You know what I mean? Like he's been in yeah. this really uh, accelerated version, this stripped down version without any of like the cute ideological superstructural stuff. And he's seen the core of the thing. It's sort of like in that really weird matrix three, let's not fight about the matrix. Anyone, I'm sorry to piss anyone off, but in matrix three, <laughs> we like see inside and it's like, okay. Um, but, but I think he's, he's like seen too much to believe that now a debit card with lots of money attached to it is going to save him. Um, and mm. I think the knowledge and, you know, too, what's his breaking point? His breaking point is seeing the guy in the train station getting swindled by the same dude. The thought that somebody else would go on that same path is is, is unthinkable to him. So I, so I would say, and there's a lot of re really good thoughts in the chat about this. I still don't want to say if Jean's like a good, the you know, a good guy or not. I will say that he seems to be morally affected by the end of it, by mm. the... And I think thinks outside of himself because he is a very selfish character early on. He treats his mom like shit and steals money from her to go gambling. Like that's not chill. Um, also takes no. the manager. His 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 breakfast bonchon setup looks delightful. I wish I had someone that made me breakfast like that. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I I think that there is some sort of yeah, some place he gets by the end of it. But you're also right. He can't. He's just seen too much to be happy. And I think sometimes that's interesting. I mean, yeah, yeah. But this happens, right? I think Austin, you and I have seen this in life. Sometimes there's a type of person who, and sometimes it's just like a performative grad student type who reads about how bad the world is and just like can't be happy, can't just relax. Um, I'll say this to everyone listening or watching. Austin and myself have hung out with multiple people in our lives, sometimes together, and our and also separately, who have been so affected by knowing how the world works that they seemingly can't enjoy things. Um, or yeah. or the person who, and I don't judge this person at all, who goes so deep into climate research that they just truly feel like, what is the fucking point? And, and I think that yeah. kind of despair is what we see in June at, at the end of this, but 
who knows? Maybe he's going to go full Jason Bourne in season two. Well, again, I think that this comes back to not having the resources to be able to actually express a vital impulse. Yeah. Right? Also, someone so like, in the chat it, just yeah, I have to say, someone in the chat brought up something yeah. that, that we we forgot about. Oh, we do know this about Jiyun, right? He was a part of that big union strike. We know that before his life fell apart, he was a That's union right. worker at the auto factory. Um, he watched people get like beat by the police as they were trying to stand up for those workers' rights. Everyone got fired. So there is this tragic backstory as well that's not just he, he's a deadbeat. And I think it's very informative when he has that moment where he explains that to the old man and is like, I'm not just a bag of shit. I did this thing. It was meaningful for, to me. We stood up for something, but we saw how one person mm. could take over the company and ruin all of our lives. And I'm so and sorry to interrupt. this is a really... Yeah. No, this is great because this is a really strident point that, that really, to me, demonstrates, again, why the show is against neoliberal globalization and mm-hmm. a lot of the kind of structural adjustment and infrastructure transformations at the policy level that characterize this global movement that has now become like water. It is the air we breathe. Well, I guess if it's water, it's the water we breathe because we're fish now. Shout out to DFW. So, um, the, water but- we, the water we drink? The water we drink, yeah, yeah, yeah. The air we drink, whatever it, it, it is, right? And so the idea is, is that if in a previous era, let's call it the late Fordist economic era, um, what you had was really strong labor unions around the world that allowed for worker power to be able to compete over wages uh, and the proportion of value that was going to be distributed between workers and owners, right? But once that power dynamic becomes shifted and workers no longer have power, you don't just get um, an automatic shift towards indebtedness, but what you have is you have a group of people who become incapacitated because their wages aren't keeping up with the standard of living, so their purchasing power becomes diminished. So what do they increasingly have to resort to? credit. And this is what we have seen. We have seen this exponential boom since the late 1970s. Exponential boom in the expansion of not just credit in the form of like credit cards, but everything now is a credit instrument, a debt instrument. And so people have to rely on that. So I think this is another instance that this show is clearly anti-capitalist. I saw some dude with a baby brain on Twitter. You know the guy that wears a beanie? Is it Tim Pool? I can't remember. Oh, that guy sucks. Tim Pool? No, I, this this is this isn't even baby brain. This is like precom brain. Like this guy said that the show was the show was anti-communist, and I was like, wait, how? Come on, bro. Like, how is it anti-communist? I'm not saying it's pro-communist, but I'm saying that the show is clearly anti-capitalist. Like. If you want to say it's anti-crony capitalism or anti-something like that, that's fine. I don't really care. But there is no way that this show could in any way be somehow like anti-socialist, anti-communist. It is clearly a critique against neoliberal globalization in the expansion yeah. of finance and the expansion of finance mechanisms. And yeah. It's clearly. And, and as you were saying the thing, no, totally. And as this is a baby pre-com, pre-com baby brain take. Um, <laughs> but I do think something you said before maybe as well. So we are in a movie podcast. I think a great movie that if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking about like, you, you know, the end of the Fordist era, the beginning of this era uh, of sort of the, the end of unions, the beginning of indebted man, all that sort of stuff. Um, Harlan County, USA is a great documentary um, that's about a mine in, uh, I think, West Virginia. No, is it Kentucky? Or, I think West Virginia. And, and uh, kind of you see what happens in, in this era when 
you know, privatization hits an industry that's long been unionized, how it affects people's lives. And just a great way to kind of, you know, if you'd rather watch a fun doc than, than read a bunch of dry text, it, it captures a moment really well. And I definitely thought about mm. it when June was talking about his experience. And I do think it's still on, I think it's on like HBO Max and maybe the Criterion Channel thing as well, if anyone wants to stream that. Um, but yeah, I had to drop that in. Cool. Cool. I do want to say, so someone in the chat, uh, let me, it's Hippopotamus Bosch said, should we be applying Western philosophy to a Korean series? So one of my favorite philosophers is a Korean philosopher named Byung-Chul Han. And I have talked about Byung-Chul Han on this podcast many, 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 many a time. Um, I know Michael has recently gotten into Byung-Chul Han within the last year or two, maybe, right? Because well. of you. Yeah. You re- you re- you know, talked about and recommended him. So I got some books and honestly, one of the most uh, exciting and interesting philosophers I've read in the past decade. Love his work. I think so. Um, his most famous work or most well-known book is um, on the Burnout Society. My favorite of his is called The Agony of Eros. Mm-hmm. He's also written books on like beauty and um, he has written a book on Zen Buddhism, which is only translated. So he writes in German and Korean um, and that one's translated into Spanish, but most of his books are translated into English. And he writes a lot about what we might call the late capitalist era as being characterized by the development of achievement subjects, that we are all kind of entrepreneurs, kind of working on ourselves. But the main thrust of all of this is that there's no lack and no negativity. So there's no like discipline, there's no pain, but we are all caught up in this system willingly and we enjoy it. And so there's like this perpetual working on ourselves that is valorized by this society that kind of hooks us in a little bit more without it being like something that beats us over the head or punishes us. And I wonder if there is something about this show that because there's this reward and because there's this like maybe this almost theological like this divine um, relationship to that big ball of money that's up there is there something about Han's work like what's you know this Han talks a lot about how like in social media like whenever you press the like button that's like the amen so he's not above using religious language I wonder if we could think about Han we could think about the kind of religious yeah. aspect you know like what oh do, and what I think thinking? too like um and I think the Han thing is really great and I'm glad that someone asked that question I mean I do think too it is interesting the one sort of academic text we see in the show is a, a book by psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan um lectures on theory yeah, of desire yeah. I think so and I think that plays into it well and obviously Han's work uh interacts with the psychoanalytic tradition to an extent as far as I'm you know I feel like I've you, you've read all of it yeah it so yeah yeah I mean I yeah. definitely think it gets it, it, it that and I do think for me one of the most striking images of the show and I definitely a part of the show I forget if we see this in episode one or two where it's like okay we're not being subtle here in a good way is when we gaze at the ball of money with a golden (laughs) light shining behind it like christ above us trying to give us redemption and the way that that's the thing that pulls them back as well Mm. so i definitely can see that there and i yeah and and i do think as well along with thinking about it in terms of you know the western non-western philosophy thing which is a great question um you know i also think too south korea has a very specific relationship with debt that is similar to a, a lot of western countries but not the same and there's been a few really good articles about this in the mm. past week or so getting at the economic differences in korean society the debt to income ratio in people in their 30s over there so i do think we can apply it very well to, to most societies, especially, you know, as Americans that live in free market economies um, and, you know, part-time Australians, we can apply it, apply it to ourselves pretty well. <laughs> but there is a specificity to 
the contemporary contemporary Korean economic situation, which I think does add context. And if you if you like the show and you haven't read a little mm-hmm. bit about that, we quoted a few pieces to talk about this in the Wisecrack video we made. But um, worth looking into, and for me at least, it, it kind of illuminated aspects of the show. Yeah, one of the things that I think is also really interesting, there's also a, a particular influx, and um, I'm trying to think of influence of uh, westernized evangelical Christianity that uh, is is quite potent within the borders of South Korea within the, the within the population and there's the one character that is explicitly Christian um, mm-hmm. that is yeah. you know uh, quoting the Bible reading the Bible praying giving giving thanks to God and I think that there's something also about and there's a lot written about this about the relationship between God theology indebtedness again to talk about Nietzsche and Lazarado and then also yeah go ahead oh, yeah. Our, and another thing to our, our old buddy Philip Goodchild um, if you want to read more about yes debt and and sort of the theology of money and all these sort of things just look up the the, the name Philip Goodchild he's written a lot of really good books on this topic yeah um, and I, I again this is very on the nose for me it's something that I'm kind of developing in my own thought but I think that there's essentially a very religious ethic to the global what sometimes is called the Wall Street consensus. Um, uh, a colleague of mine, Ilias um, uh, Astami, has written about this, uh, about how there is um, a, a, a shift uh, towards the kind of financialization of global capital flows. But one of the things that I think accompanies that is this like promise of redemption, that if you just get enough, then you're going to be saved, right? And so there's always that promise of freedom. And so you get that very explicitly with these people, that they'll be out of debt bondage. But I think you also just get that within a societal frame yeah. that's like, that, that like if you participate and you assent to it, then you're justified. You're clean because you're a part of the system. And then it's a lifelong process of bettering yourself, you know, and, and in Christian terms, they would use the word sanctified, or we could say you become more holy, right? So the more... I don't know, the more you um, embed yourself into the system, you know, the more pure you become because you're a better participant in the Wall Street consensus, so to speak. Yeah, well, and then the promise yeah. is always what? Ultimate salvation, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always the carrot that's being dangled in front of you. Yeah, and I think it's another thing when you read about um, economic trends in, in South Korean society, there's, there's a marked uh, parallel between the rise of Christianity, um, which I think really got booming in the 70s. In Korea, I think Lutheranism in particular, but I might be wrong there. Um, shouts, shouts to my favorite Korean um, uh, Christian, Mrs. Kim from Stars Hollow on Gilmore Girls. Um, <laughs> really Dude. taught me a lot about ferocious uh, 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 Korean conservatism in their religious belief. Um, but, you know, I, I so I think there is I think that's a, that's and I think that might be one of the biggest points of overlap between kind of the the western and korean conception of things that play there i do know we've been we've been talking about this for a while um i have to ask you one thing what do you think about squid game as a story we're we're talking a lot about the big ideas here i'm just curious like do we like this because it lets us talk about all this sort of stuff which we want to talk about or do we genuinely like the story being told and appreciate on top of that the fact that it's provided the occasion for us to, you know, riff about economic philosophy for a while. And and I don't even know if I know the answer for myself. So I'm just kind of curious. Is it – and this is me being like devil's advocate Is this just serving up yeah. so much like, ooh, hitting zeitgeisty political things that we're missing the fact that maybe the, the story's not incredible? It's fine. 
Mm-hmm. It's fine. It, it's very – it's fine, you know? Like it's it's not doing anything that to me pulls at um, the heartstrings. I mean the construction of the story is pretty simple and formulaic. Like you even talked about the hero's journey and then, you know, the deadbeat dad thing. And it's kind of like, okay, those things are there for sentimental – to score their sentimental points. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's It's fine. It's well executed. It's pretty simple in its formula, minus the American actors or the rich actors when they come in. The acting is really great. So good. I think the God, the aesthetic is amazing. I love that fucking what is it? Esh kind of stairs fucking thing. Oh where yeah. Like what the, it feels like, like Escher kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, MC like, Escher. Kind of rad. Yeah. Visually, yeah, it's that's that's kind of rad. Yeah. Yeah, and I love, I love, I love the idea that they're taking kids' games but making them murderous. I think that's kind of fun, but you know, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, you I mean, know, I think, at, I mean, at its best, <laughs> I think it reminds me of the best parts of the horror genre, especially early horror, when we, you know, were when horror was used to talk about things in society and get it inequality, social issues, all that sort of stuff. The same thing that makes like Jordan Peele's yeah. work interesting now. Um, I think that part of it is really great. And I think that it's, I think the show is supposed to be kind of fun. And I think they do, you know what I mean? I don't think it's like someone um, brought up in the chat earlier, and I haven't watched the show yet. uh, This show on Netflix, Made, that sounds like it gets at issues. I just finished it. Yeah. I just finished it. Okay. So it sounds like that's a show that's exploring in a very real way um, class disparity and things like that. But. Yeah, and more of an uh, uh, emotional focus story that's not fun, but it's good. You've watched it, so it's not I, fun. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So, um, so I think in a sense, like it did a good job, but it's good. Yeah, okay. but yeah, I think Squid Game does a good job at providing a fun show that's compelling to watch that gives us things to think about. I think that's a hard thing to do, very hard, and it does a pretty good job. And I would rather watch a show that swings at something like that, and you know makes contact with the ball maybe isn't scoring but does a decent job um then something doesn't try at all you know so i i hope that i hope that it yeah. motivates people and i guess i don't want to say make because there's tons of people that want to make stuff like this i hope that it maybe gets people's projects funded that want to make things like this what mm. i hope doesn't happen though is that like it leads and i mean it will right um but i'm not excited about maybe the shitty imitations with nothing to say that come in the wake of this um, that operated a real surface level, mm. which is inevitable. Anytime something pops yeah. in Hollywood or in, in music or whatever, we're going to see shitty versions of that that are a little bit hollow to follow. So I'm not excited about that part. Yeah, there's a there's a John C. Riley and Will Ferrell version of this where it's like uh, the two of them <laughs> go in together. It's like a super, super... <laughs> Well, I mean, that sounds pretty good. A super good. comedy version? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I'll watch anything that John C. Riley's in. So actually, now that I talk about it, I'm kind of into the idea. Oh, God, yes. Um, but so I will say this. The one, the most emotional I got was episode, the Marvel episode? Six. Um, what? Okay. The the relationship between Sabiok and I can't remember the other woman's name. Oh, my God. That um, scene. I cried, I cried like a baby in that one. And then before we find out that Ilnam is the mastermind, that kind of whole manipulation of his dementia. And then when fucking Ali gets stabbed in the back, I was like, you fucker song. I fucking screamed. I was so mad. <laughs> but, but that, no, but so, here's the thing. Episode so there, six is a wonderful is some, episode of television. Yeah. And it's really good storytelling. Yeah. It is. so, But you only get there, though, because it's built up 
our attachment to Ali, our care about, say, Byok, um, and her being like a refugee from, yeah. you know, uh, 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 from North Korea. And so you, so it does do some good job, a really good job of like making us care about these characters. And for me, it was that episode that was was like the perfect kind of culmination of that. And it was very heavy. We took like a two day break, I think, after that. And we were like, let's just let this sit for a second. And then I think the next episode is the uh, rich people come in, and it's yeah. like, oh my god, that was a that was. <laughs> The, the sequence of the show I, I kind of maybe missed that episode because um, it was a little bit like you eat this gourmet meal and then right after someone comes in with like a half-eaten Snickers bar and is like here's what's next um, but the yeah VIPs here they come Ha-ha. I like to watch the poor die do you nice mask <laughs> Um, listen, I think they, I think I read this somewhere that like it was really a matter of in like an intense lockdown period, they just had to like near where they were producing the show be like, we need to find some English speaking actors who are available to do this because I think it was a thing where like they mm-hmm. they couldn't like fly folks in, um, or at least that's the most charitable explanation yeah. for that. But yeah, I, I will say this as well, just so we mention this, and so no one says like, but you didn't talk about this. There's been some conversation as well about the uh, translations in English. And I will just say, if anyone is interested in that yes, conversation, um, this week on Culture Binge, another Wisecrack podcast, we had a great guest who's uh, Allison Herman, who's the uh, main TV writer over at The Ringer. And uh, we it was our first topic we talked about. So if you feel like we didn't get into that, you wanted to hear us talk about it, go just go listen to the first 20 minutes of the most recent episode of Culture Binge, and you'll hear that discussion. That sounds good. Well, look, I mean, I feel like we could talk about this show continuously i actually for a little bit i was like i, I didn't know if we were going to fill up the whole hour were we going to get into to other stuff i mean i feel like we are, are even kind of scratching the surface so let me say this if you want to contribute to this conversation definitely make sure you email us or call us and leave us a voicemail and we can talk a little bit more about squid game at the end of further episodes or um so our future episodes i should say so you can email us at movies at wisecrack.co that's movies at wisecrack.co, or you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. We've been getting some voicemails, but they've been really long. They've been like three minutes long, and as much as we love to hear your voice, we can't play a three-minute long voicemail on the air. So if you can, try to keep them concise and short. If you want to kind of uh, elaborate and expound a little bit more, then maybe email is the better format. It's just unfortunately we can't play the whole voicemail, right? So today what we're going to do is we're going to quickly just do um, a couple of emails from the mailbag before we get out of here. The first one is from Stephen on Pan's Labyrinth. Basically, here it goes. Hey, guys, love the podcast. I wrote an article on Pan's Labyrinth and wanted to share it slash get some feedback from y'all. I heard y'all talk about the Pale Man at the end of your Nightcrawler podcast, and I have some thoughts. In my understanding, Captain Vidal represents the forces of indoctrination that drove both the Spanish Inquisition and the Spanish Civil War. The abundant Catholic imagery and Vidal's torture methods support this connection with the Spanish Inquisition. The fawn, however, represents the freedom of choice, present within an open-hearted framework. When choice is subjected to the high demands of perfect faith, as present in the fascistic machinations of both Axis politics and medieval Catholicism, the fawn turns into the pale man. This is why the fawn and the pale man are played by the same actor, and why the pale man takes Vidal's place at the dinner table. Both the fawn and the pale man are representations of choice as manifested in either the indoctrinal or the mystical framework. Vidal and the pale man offer a certain kind of choice. Choose to align your beliefs with mine or die. 
The fawn, however, offers a different kind of choice. Choose to trust yourself or compromise your values. Now, there's a lot going on here, but uh, Stephen wrote this. You can check out Stephen's Substack. Uh, cool. It's Stephen, Stephen Mackintosh. So M-A-C-K-I-N-T-O-S-H. So you can check that out with, I think, with the rest of the essays up there. I mean, that's some fucking... That's, I think that's a great comparison. I think that's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah. And... Um, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I do like that. I do think the that the fawn pale man comparison are supposed to be opposites, and I do because I know a lot of people are like, "Why does she eat the fucking fruit in front of the pale man? Like, why? Like, it's clear, it's clear." And then Raymond made a really good point that she actually learned, she got benefited, she got rewarded from not listening to the fairy whispering in her ear and not going into the first keyhole, but going into the second keyhole, and then she's like, "Oh, so maybe if the fairy's telling me not to eat, maybe I can eat again." So there's some interesting stuff going on here with regards to like reward, uh, expectation, choice, capacity. I don't know. I dig it. Interesting thoughts. Very, very interesting. And, and kind of like our discussion today get, gets at a lot of stuff about the overlapping of political and religious forces, uh, which was obviously very heavy if you look at the modern history of Spain. So hell yeah. But also like kids, are, kids are hungry, man. Kids don't have impulse control. Like they're of course, you're gonna <laughs> come on. I'm pretty sure there was a big psychological experiment about that sort of thing. Um, maybe people can Google marshmallows, that. baby. Uh, anyway, and then we've got another one from James who wants to talk about the birdcage. Hey, wisecrack! I really enjoyed Riley's take that Val was the real villain. Val is the son. That's Robin Williams' son. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was surprised that no one really talked about Callista Flockhart's character of Barbara. I don't see her as a villain, but I forgot she was the one who panicked and lied to her parents about Val's parents. I always liked that. Despite being raised in an ultra-conservative family, she was all on board with accepting Armand and Albert into her family. It's good to see when the kids become more open-minded than their parents. Also, I always enjoyed that va- the fact that Val and Armand seemed to think that Albert's flamboyant nature would expose the lie, but as soon as he was there in drag, he was more calm than Armand and Val. He even recovered well with the Coleman-Goldman thing and the excuse of lateness by visiting her parents. Meanwhile, Armand and Val were panic-drinking from that bottle every time they stepped out of the room. Albert was set up to be the reason the act wouldn't work, and yet he, in drag, appeared to be the only thing genuine to the senator. Interesting, interesting. Love thoughts. it. I also love Riley's take there. Um, I love Riley. So glad that, that, that y'all had her on. Such a Straight. fun episode. Such a great movie. Shouts to anything that Mike Nichols and Elaine may have ever touched. But yeah, I love the reading that, that Val's the bad guy. Now, you weren't on that, that episode, but I'd love to hear uh, you tweeted out the absolute god, Elaine May. I mean, you're an improv dude. So just real quick. 20 seconds. Why should people care about Elaine May and Mike Nichols? Mike Nichols and Elaine May invented the way we do improv and sketch comedy in the modern era. Um, every, you can trace everything back. Anything you've liked comedically that's been produced in America in the past 70 years, you can trace a line back to Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And they were doing it better than most people. And they were funny and politically poignant when they were in their early 20s in Chicago. Look them up. Lots out there. They're the fucking best. That's amazing. All right, let's get out of here, brother. Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, um, Wisecrack is one place to find me. Um, I'm on lots of stuff there. <laughs> and if you want to holler at me on uh, Twitter or Instagram, it's at Michael O. Burns. And on Instagram, there's some underscores around the O's. More importantly, where are you? Where can where can everyone get at you? 
I'm in the Twitter sphere, Austin underscore Hayden. I'm in the Insta sphere, AUS underscore HAY. I've got a YouTube channel, Austin Hayden. I recently just did a video with our old buddy Jared from Wisecrack on the greatest actors of all time. Who is the greatest actor? Spoiler alert, it's Marlon Brando. Um, but also, Keanu Reeves is probably higher in the list than you guys might think, so check out that madness. Oh, and Benedict Cumberbatch is probably lower than some of you might want, and I'm probably going to get some flack for that. I already have a little bit, but check that out. Wow. And yeah, that's pretty much it. Also, check out Culture Binge. Check out our other podcasts, the back catalog of The Squanch, which is the Rick and Morty podcast. Are we still doing South Park, by the way? We're no, right we are not. Respect our authority. But it's still online, so if you want, you can go back and check out the, the backlog catalog of that. Um, yeah. Find us, subscribe us, follow us, email us, call us, all that good stuff. We're going to get out of here. Michael, send us out by however you want. L- live from um, Los Angeles, California, this has been <laughs> Show Me the Meaning uh, featuring uh, Austin and Michael. We'll be back uh, soon. In the meantime, uh, good night and, and good luck. <laughs>